Well, now a perspective on American politics and culture that's rather different to the special we broadcast a few weeks back, if you recall. Contributors Nick Bryant, Adam Toos and Ruth Ben-Giat then were pretty pessimistic, if you recall, about the decline of American democracy and they couldn't really see a turnaround. Well, by contrast, an analyst by the name of Jane Coaston has been visiting Australia as a guest of the US Study Centre in Sydney to outline why she believes things are, yes, not good, but she believes they could be worse and probably have been worse in previous American experience as recently as the turmoil of the 70s, for instance. Jane Coaston comes from America's America's Midwest, from Ohio, which she thinks might offer her a slightly different perspective. Jane's also African-American, and she's done a lot of political analysis over the years, most notably now as an occasional columnist for the New York Times, but also as the host of a popular podcast called The Argument. She focuses on conservative thinking and localism, and I hope she can give us her assessment too of the upcoming midterm elections. Now, I spoke to her in the studio before she left on Friday, so no chance, I'm afraid, to raise that news that landed just this morning about that awful attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband yesterday in their California home. I welcomed her. Thank you so much for having me. Look, one of the reasons for the over-turmoil, you say, which mm-hmm. certainly preoccupies us in Australia, is that there's a great power shift underway or more sort of an expansion of those making decisions, you suggest, mm-hmm. which makes the last 20 or 30 years much more fractious than before, so after World War Two, Now, outline that thought of yours, please, for us. Well, I think that when people often in America try to hearken back to a time of less polarization, when the two parties, the two major parties, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, were closer together ideologically, they look back to the mid-1950s. But that was also a time in which a large swath of today's electorate was not able to participate, namely African-American voters. Also, you see that with the shifts in immigration after 1965, there's a host of non-white voters in general that have been added to the electorate, meaning that the electorate is now much bigger, much broader, much more diverse, and yes, much more fractious than it was in the 1950s. I often joke that it's like if you had a room of 10 people and the door was locked, you could always say, you know, we can all come together on these specific issues. Just don't let anyone else in. That is what much of American politics was like between 1928 and 1965. And I think that there are many people for whom That sounds great. You can make a lot of agreements when everyone's very similar. But now where every town, every city is increasingly more diverse, you have cities like Houston and Dallas and Texas that now are becoming increasingly more majority non-white. You have regions in Ohio and Pennsylvania that are having dramatic economic shifts that are also changing what their electorate looks like and what it wants to do. You're seeing cities like Pittsburgh, for example, that were long known as Steel City, which now is pretty much known for the service economy and for kind of knowledge economy, the growth of the University of Pittsburgh, for example. You're just seeing a massive expansion of the electorate. And it turns out that all of those new members of the electorate have very different ideas about the way that they want things to go. And yes, that looks argumentative because it is, but I think it's also more representative of what America actually is. But I suppose that the question is, is there enough of the commons in there or is is it really uh, fractured to the point that it's dangerous? I think that... 
That's an excellent question, which is why I'm stalling very slightly. (laughs) I think, yes, there is enough of the commons. And I think you can see that in pieces of America that are not about politics. When I travel across America and I go to cities, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Los Angeles, Seattle, anywhere I go, I feel very cognizant that I am still in the same country. I'm in a very different place. If you've ever been to... South Beach in Miami, and then you go to upstate New York, it's pretty amazing how Mm, different it can be. But they are very recognizably American. It's that through line that I think offers some sort of stability and offers a lot of hope to me. Um, I think that one of the challenges we have is that often Americans are seeing other Americans not in person, but they are seeing the projections of other Americans in media, or from politicians who either want to, you to be afraid of these people or be more like these people. And I think the more I spend time with other actual Americans, the more hopeful I am because the number of Americans who have kind of the same mixed up political views that most people have, most people mm-hmm. are not, I am 100% Republican or 100% Democrat. Most people, um, The United States Studies Center just put out this great paper about opinions of Americans and a host of other folks on issues relating to relationships with Australia and other countries. And the number of answers that were, I just don't know, is so high. And I feel as if that's that's a very honest answer. Well, now I'm going to come back to that. You did offer an amazing example of the way things have changed. And I didn't know this, that your African-American grandfather, for instance, mm-hmm. fought in the Battle of the Bulge uh, on behalf of the United States, mm-hmm. came back, watched his white army colleagues given all sorts of government help, mm-hmm. and he was not. No. And uh, he won the Bronze Star uh, for bravery. He helped uh, not, he was not just at the Battle of the Bulge, but he also was part of a specific black unit that served at the Battle of Normandy during the D-Day invasion. But he saw none of the benefits that his white service colleagues saw from the end of the the Second World War. And he eventually gave his Bronze Star to his small children to play with because it meant nothing. And he felt as if it meant nothing. And I often think, one... I think so often about he and my grandmother, um, my grandmother who desegregated the church that my uh, family later went to. They they struggled so much. And now I, you know, I host a podcast for the New York Times. It's very funny thinking back that like my grandfather, like helping storm the beaches and me, I host a podcast. <laughs> but um, I think often about how that that was the experience for a large swath of the electorate. And I think also for a lot of people, in especially with how politics worked in a lot of major cities in America, there was a real sense that politics was something that getting involved would only cause problems. You saw the the sort of machine politics in Chicago and New York mm-hmm. and elsewhere. And I think for people like my grandfather, the, what was politics to him? Politics meant nothing. There was no sort of participatory politics. And so I think that there's been a rise of political hobbyism in America what do you mean of people that? who... who talk about politics all the time, who are constantly thinking about it, but in the same way that um, people get really, really into, say, watching like the Great British Bake Off. (laughs) But, you know, they're thinking about like, oh, his technical was off. And you see people talking... Safe addictions. Yes, people talking about that, which one, that the point of politics is not politics. The point of politics is to get things done and to figure out how to operate as a citizenry. 
But that type of political hobbyism was unimaginable to someone like my grandfather. Well, in fact, you also told a story at this <laughs> webinar that I uh, heard that um, when you were growing up in Cincinnati, everybody worried about like the next, the building that was being built. That right. was local and we're going to come to localism in a moment. You know, who's doing that down the road? What the heck's happening there? Yeah. Now they want to talk to you about who's going to be Speaker of the Con- of Congress. And- yeah, and it's, uh, it's very strange because so that that's is... that's a, some- a complete change, isn't it's it? It's been a complete change and I think that that's something that has happened since 2016. I think that Trump's election was such a shock to the system for many people that they became engaged with the sort of day-to-day politics that typically only people who work for the Washington Post were engaged with. Now, there are people who are emailing me saying, like, why aren't you talking about this specific issue that's happening? Why aren't you talking about... um, Biden's chips deal to try and deal with. And I'm just like, I, I'm sorry, like, I would need to go back, read a lot more about this. And then I could come back to you. But I think that that type of engagement now, I think, but referencing kind of that type of localism, the challenge is that people don't have as much information about something that's happening down the street, and but the they are well aware. has died. That's your right. point. Mm. They're, they're well aware of what's taking place in Washington, D.C. So, and I live there, so it's so kind of funny. So that prompts my thought about the midterms. If the Republicans do mm. gain control of the House, and this, it's very difficult yeah. to know, how will all this diversity and all these diverse people, and how will they be affected by that? Well, I think the challenge is that typically the party in power of the White House tends to lose control of Congress in the following midterm. That's generally how this works. I think the challenge will be, once again, that the Republicans will be the party of not that, not the party of we want this. The Republicans will be standing athwart something, to borrow a phrase from a conservative commentator, William F. Buckley, in America. And what will be interesting, though is whether or not Republicans will then be given credit if, for instance, the economy improves, not because of anything that they do, but just because the global economy is driven by shifts that largely are not the responsibility of the American Congress. For instance, right now, um, gas prices are starting to go down in America. Part of that is because there's been changes to the um, petroleum reserve that uh, the president has access to. But part of that is just how oil prices work. And so I think that what will be interesting is that the Republicans have promised that they are going to focus on a lot of issues that are not of deep importance, I think, to the vast number of Americans. They are focusing on investigations into things that Republicans are mad about. For instance, they want to have hearings with regard to COVID and uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci. They want to have more investigations into Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, Mm -hmm. for reasons that largely have to do with how Republicans see it and not what would happen to what, you know, everyday Americans would benefit from. But I also think that for many Americans, they will experience this as just being another example of how Congress doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, I wondered whether a lot of people were surprised, for instance, that Latinos started voting, mm-hmm. Amer- that African-Americans started voting mm-hmm. for, for Republicans because they thought that they were saying, no, right. stop, don't, for those very diversity yeah. you're describing. Does it surprise you? Not really. I think that we have a tendency to believe that people's um, ideology is as tied up in their ethnicity or perceptions of their ethnicity as they might be for some people. Um, for example, African-Americans and many Latinos tend to be more socially conservative. 
that has not, for African-Americans, led to them voting for Republicans for reasons that I think for many Americans would be fairly obvious mm-hmm. regarding the history of American conservative American conservatism with African-Americans. But for Which was like, often in the past, of course, right. Democrat, <laughs> right, down right. in the South. Right, exactly. And so I think that there have been, for a lot of African-Americans, there is an interest in some in conservatism, but not necessarily in voting for Republicans. And that's why I think that it's important. We don't see this as much as we should in both parties, but having party people who are voted for, who are representative of where they're from, not necessarily the party writ large. So for instance, there has been a lot of talk about the death of the so-called blue dog Democrat, which is kind of the moderate, slightly more conservative Democrat. But also there used to be such a thing as a liberal Republican, a pro-choice mm. Republican, and they don't exist anymore. And I think that that is a real challenge for our politics. And I think that for our Latinos, which let's keep in mind that using that term is de- defining a swath of Americans that can include folks who emigrated from Cuba who live in Florida, but also someone whose grandfather came from El Salvador and now lives in Texas. That's a massive group of people, all of whom will have very different political experiences, but also a lot of them tend to be generally more religious and more socially conservative. So it's not that surprising to me. I do think it's interesting, though, about uh, 12 years ago, there was this idea of the emerging democratic majority, that eventually, as America became majority-minority, that Democrats would thus get those votes from non-white voters and win forever. Mm. And that became a talisman for some Democrats, but also this fear for some Republicans. And it's interesting to me that as more non-white people vote for Republicans, you have not seen Republicans respond by talking more about changing immigration policy or talking about issues that might be important to different groups of people. Instead, you still see some of the same type of immigration restrictionism and the same types of kind of racialized rhetoric. Because they want that old America, one assumes. And so it's been interesting because you are seeing a host of uh, Latinos who are not just voting for Republicans, but running for office as Republicans, but they are running alongside of people who are also Republicans who essentially are arguing that they are part of some effort to replace the white race. And it's it's a really complex relationship because those conservative values might be in some way similar, but how they're perceived based on who's holding them will be very different. Now, I'd like you to talk about some key um, contests. I wonder what you single out. I mean, all eyes are on Georgia, but also on Arizona. If you look at the Arizona story, I don't know how you can be calm about American democracy with what's happening there. So what are you focusing on? I think I'm particularly interested in, as you mentioned, uh, I think Arizona is particularly interesting. Georgia is as well. Pennsylvania. Um, mm-hmm. It's, it's fascinating state. to me how um, there's been a lot of focus on the Senate race between John Fennerman and Dr. Mehmet Oz. But at the gubernatorial area, um, the Democrat Josh Shapiro has a pretty big lead over Republican Doug Mastriano, who is not just another election denier. More than 370 election denialists are running for office across America for various positions. But also he is um, he's accepted money from avowed anti-Semitic org- organizations and has espoused a specific type of Christian nationalism. Josh Shapiro himself is Jewish. Mm. And it's been really interesting how that race has been not that close and um, it's it's interesting how Doug Mastriano has positioned himself in a very different way than mm-hmm. the Arizona gubernatorial candidate who is extraordinarily Trumpy. She's a former um, 
television news host. And I'm just, it's interesting, interesting how each of these races is very reflective of where they are and who is voting. Well, that's what's interesting about Georgia, because I right. heard today that they've had this extraordinary phenomenon. A million people have already voted in Georgia. It's right. very early voting, and that's unusual. Apparently, you can go up, it's not a postal yeah. vote, you go up and you vote. Now, what do you make of that? I think that that says something about how Georgia has become a massive turnout state. And I think Georgia also understands that it can be a political bellwether for the rest of the South. There are a couple different stories to tell about Georgia politically. One, Georgia has historically been a part of something what people call the New South, that after the Second World War in the early 1960s, there were a host of companies and corporations and people who moved to Georgia because of it was relatively lax business regulations, and also to Atlanta, which after the upheaval of the civil rights movement, let's keep in mind that Atlanta is where Martin Luther King preached mm-hmm. and where a host of other civil rights luminaries lived and worked, that it, it has become, in some ways, the, an African-American mecca and has been since the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s. So there were a host of African-Americans who had moved north during the Great Migration in the 1920s and 1930s, fleeing racism, who in the 1990s moved to Georgia essentially for business opportunities and made, you know, help make Atlanta one of the most powerful, largely African-American cities in the country. And what you saw, interestingly, in 2020 and 2021 is that those voters, African-American women specifically, helped Democrats have two uh, Democratic senators from Georgia. Also, that is in part because Donald Trump essentially told Republicans to stay home because he was mad. Um, What you're seeing now is that continued political activation happening because I think so often the stories we tell about states in America are based, they they are based on a picture, but it's not a moving picture. It doesn't Mm -hmm. show what's Mm -hmm. happening over time. It doesn't show the economic shifts that are happening For instance, Florida is now a very red state. Texas is purple in all but actual Mm. voting, which Mm. is really interesting because I think that something about Texas that a lot of people don't know is that there are a lot of Democrats who live in Texas. They just are not, their votes are not often reflected in some part because of gerrymandering. But you're seeing some states shifting right and left, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their electorate feels one specific way. I always think about that there was a host of states in 2020 that went for Trump, but also those same voters voted to raise the minimum wage and voted to legalize recreational and medical marijuana. And I'm so interested because I think that to many people, I think of people's politics as being very, you are Republican, ergo you think this and this and this, but that's not how most people work. And I think that these midterms are an opportunity in which we're starting to see that, in which we're seeing people making decisions on ballot issues that are going to look totally different from how they vote for the Senate or the House. What a paradox. (laughs) I can't wait to find out what happens. Look, thank you very much. It's been terrific to have you join us. Thank you so much for having me. Jane Coaston is host of um, a New York Times podcast, The Argument, and she's invited us to come back to her. So we may well do that uh, after the midterms. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.